0: In the late summer or early fall of the year seventy nine AD, seventy nine, there were nearly twelve thousand people who lived in the resort city of Pompeii. You already know where I'm going. It was a beautiful location on the Bay of Naples in southern Italy. Many of the elite from the capital of Rome would drive down, uh, had villas down there. They would go to this resort town, enjoy all that it had to offer. Tourists and townspeople and even enslaved people uh, bustled in and out of little factories and artisan shops and taverns and cafes and brothels and bathhouses, all the things the Romans were known for. They would gather to the 20,000-seat arena, and they would lounge in all the open-air squares and marketplaces. But as you know, and as history records, disaster struck in 79 A.D. The city was about four miles from Mount Vesuvius, a volcano that had been dormant for centuries. And on the first day of the disaster, the volcano would erupt, spewing ash and rock So high into the air, it was seen from a hundred miles around. Because of the fact that it was shooting up so high, people had time to flee the area. And many did flee the area that first day. Because it was on the second day, when the volcano erupted again, that the true disaster came. This time a pyroclastic flow, which is volcano speak for a uh, hundred miles an hour, blast of superheated gas and pulverized rock came pouring down the side of the mountain and vaporized everyone and everything in its path, just in moments. By the time the eruption Sputtered to an end, Pompeii was buried under millions of tons of volcanic ash. Over 2,000 people who had stayed in the city were killed, and over 16,000 in the surrounding area in total died from the blast of the volcano. The city would lie buried for nearly 1,700 years until archaeologists discovered it, and began to excavate it. A city in ruins. Jerusalem lay in ruins after the siege of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. The walls were broken down. The temple had been ravaged. Many of the homes burned. It was an awful sight. And it wasn't due to a volcano, it was due to a savage attack by a foreign country. We often call natural tragedies like what happened in Pompeii, acts of God. But this destruction in the land of Judah was every bit as much an act of God as well. Certainly it was the Babylonians who crushed and mutilated Judah and Jerusalem. And we've read all about their sufferings in Lamentations chapter 1 and now Lamentations chapter 2. But God had said it would be like this. Hold your place here in Lamentations 2 and turn back to Leviticus chapter 26 for a moment. Leviticus chapter 26. And then keep your place here in Leviticus. We'll refer to it later. God had told His people through Moses, what would happen if they thumbed their noses at Him, if they despised His laws, if they despised and rebelled His commandments? Leviticus 26, look at verse 27 through down to verse 33. Listen to what God said and think about what's happening in Lamentations. But in spite of this, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Lamentations chapter 2. God told them exactly what would happen if they rebelled against his law. You know, it's this kind of divine judgment when we see it in the Old Testament particularly that the atheists love to pile on. For example, I've quoted him before, but uh, a noted new atheist, as they're called, Richard Dawkins wrote this in his book, The God Delusion. Quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully, unquote. Is that the God we know and love? A schoolyard bully? As others have suggested, God is a cosmic child abuser. Because he sent his own son as an innocent person to be tortured and murdered for all the guilty people. Is God a child abuser? Is he unjust in his punishment of sin? In his punishment of Judah? Where is his mercy? Where is his grace? Where is his compassion? I don't know if those questions have entered your mind since we started Lamentations. But as you've read chapter 1 and now chapter 2, I've asked those questions. It's got to be here somewhere. Where, where is it? Where is that Where is that mercy? Where's that grace? Where's that compassion that that we know, we love, we've seen so much in our lives and and through history? Where is it? Well, these are questions that chapter 2 will not directly answer for us. If anything, chapter 2 increases our understanding of the suffering of God's people at this time. So if we're not going to get to the good stuff (laughs) until maybe chapter 3, don't look ahead. What is it that we're meant to see in chapter 2? Just another hard, sad, painful scene? How is this lament even different from chapter 1? I've titled my message today, The Day of Your Anger. The reason is because Lamentations chapter 2 wraps itself in this idea of the Lord's anger. Look at verse 1. It talks about the day of His anger. Look at the end of the chapter, verses 21 and 22. You have the same emphasis. Verse 21, you have killed them in the day of your anger. Verse 22. On the day of the anger of the Lord. So there are these bookends in chapter 2 that give us a theme the day of the Lord's great anger. And remember, when it comes to the subject of anger, the Lord's anger is not like our sinful anger, right? His anger is holy. It's measured. It's never out of control. God doesn't lose his temper. It's not sinful anger like our anger many times can be. It's not like he's blasting like the volcano of Pompeii blasted. The Bible says he is slow to anger. We sang that this morning. The Lord is slow to anger. He has given these people plenty of time to repent, to turn away from their sin, dozens and dozens of times. He has sent them multiple prophets in their history, to call them to repentance, in addition to giving them His actual Word that we just read in the law, Leviticus 26, among other places in the law, that tell them how to live, what God expects, what will be the blessings for their obedience, what will be their judgment for disobedience. He's laid it all out. He's given them lots of time. But God is holy, and he must judge sin. He doesn't wink at it, the Bible says. He doesn't turn away and ignore it. And he did so, he judged it in 586 B.C. So in looking at this chapter this morning, I want us to see, I've broken it up into three sections. I I want us to see, first, the record of, of the Lord's anger in the first eight verses. And then second, I want you to see the intensity of his anger in verses 9 to 17. And then finally, see a response to the Lord's anger in verses 18 to 22, where there's a prayer similar to how chapter 1 ended with a prayer. So let's look at these verses together this morning. The record of the Lord's anger, verses 1 through 8. I don't know if you noticed this because, you know, as we read, Back and forth, we're not catching every little detail, but maybe you caught the fact as we were reading the scripture a moment ago that in these first eight verses, there are a massive number of violent verbs. There's this barrage of actions, and the Lord is the subject of all of those verbs. 30 action verbs. All with God is the subject. Just survey the text with me quickly. Look at verse 1. He has cast down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up. He's broken down in his wrath the strongholds. Verse 3. He's cut down in his fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's burned against Jacob. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Swallowed up all her strongholds. Verse 6. He's laid in ruins her meeting place. You know what her meeting place was? The temple. God did this. He's treated in fierce indignation king and priest You can go on and on. Even into verse 9, He's still giving verbs. He has ruined and broken uh, the bars. God has smashed and shattered and crushed His people and His land. What a barrage. This hammering and pounding of the Lord's anger just over and over and over in these first verses. He is the wrecker of Judah. He is like their enemy, the Scripture says. He's the destroyer of his own worship center. This is the record of the Lord's anger. What's the importance of this? I think it's necessary for us to see that there's a reason for the anger. This isn't a Richard Dawkins version of God who just capriciously decides to afflict anger and punishment on people just if he's had a bad day. No. This anger is because of the guilt of his people This anger is deserved. It was earned by the actions of his people over a long, long period of rebellion. You remember, Paul does a similar thing in the book of Romans. Do you remember when we studied the book of Romans? You're like, boy, that was a long time ago. It was. But uh, we studied it. And after the the chapter 1, there's like an introduction, the first 17 verses, and then Paul jumps into his first theme. And do you remember how he starts the book of Romans? It's not, nothing will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Now he gets there, but that's not where he starts. He starts like this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he starts fleshing out what that means. By the way, he's not just talking in Romans 1 about the most corrupt and the most immoral and the most perverse actions of people. A lot of times we run to chapter one when we're dealing with homosexuality or lesbianism or or other kinds of immoral behavior that's so rampant in our culture today. A lot of times we run to chapter one, but it's not just talking about those sins and those kinds of people. Oh no, there's something much more basic than that in Romans chapter one. He said, The wrath of God is revealed against people who didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Ever stop and think about that? You probably know lots of people like that. It's not that they live terribly immoral lives. They may be upstanding American citizens. They may vote in every election. But they're people who just don't take any account of God in their life. They lie down at night, they wake up in the morning, their house hasn't been ravaged by fire or tornadoes, no burglars have broken in, they wake up secure and they never think about giving God thanks for that. They go to the kitchen, they eat their food, they don't think about giving thanks for that. They go out the door to go to their jobs, which they have to provide for their needs, but they never stop to think that these jobs are gifts for which they ought to give thanks. They take their daughter or son to the medical clinic. There's an infection that has to be dealt with, and they get some medicine, and and the, the child recovers, but they never give thanks to the healer. They travel to school, they travel to work, they travel on vacation, they're on the highways day after day, week after week. Most days they come back safely in one piece without any accidents, and they never give God thanks. So here you have the giver of every good and perfect gift that comes from above, and people don't give him thanks. They don't honor him as God, not just one day. But day after day after day, it never even enters their head to give thanks to the one who gives them all these gifts. Can you see how that is a terrible wickedness? And according to his word, people, even like that, are storing up wrath for the day of wrath, the record of God's anger. Look at the intensity of the Lord's anger. Verses 9 to 17. The author kind of takes us on a little tour of what's going on, giving us little pictures, little snapshots of agony. If you want to break down this section, look at verses 9 to 13 and see these little snapshots of agony. The first snapshot you see is a lack of instruction. Look at the end of verse 9. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Even her prophets don't find any vision from the Lord. There's no direction. No one seems to have a word from the Lord. No one's saying, this is the way. Walk in this. Notice in verse 10. Complete despair. Complete despair. You have the elders The important men, the leaders of the daughter of Zion, sitting on the ground in silence, throwing dust on their heads, putting on sackcloth. This is a picture of complete despair. The elders are so distraught. They're so upset. They're so preoccupied. They can't offer any leadership. They're helpless. They sit in silence. There's a third snapshot in verses 11 and 12. Emotional exhaustion. You see what he focuses on in in verse 11. Notice he goes into the first person here. My eyes. My bile. My bile is poured out on the ground over the destruction of the daughter of my people when babies and infants are fainting away in the streets of the town. And he says a similar thing in verse 12. Infants and babies crying out to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Where is where's the food? Because there wasn't any more. This is what happened during the siege. The, the, the armies of Babylon surrounded the city of Jerusalem. No one could get in and out. And they just starve them to death. They wait for them to run out of resources and either surrender or die. There wasn't any more. They're dying on their mother's laps. Their their life is pouring out of them, these little ones. You you may remember last week I I told you how the verses of chapter 1 were were kind of, they had some parallelism, like verse 1 and verse 22 had similar terms. And it kind of worked itself to the middle, kind of focusing on the middle. Well, this chapter does the exact same thing. And it focuses again on verses 11 and 12. And what, is, what do we see in verses 11 and 12 as we're looking at right now? The focus that the author is drawing our attention to is the effect of this destruction on the young, on the, on the weak, on the innocent. The destruction for the people's sin is having a profound impact on other people, even on the young It's intense. You see in verse 13, impossible consolation. Look at verse 13. He's frustrated. What can I say? How can I comfort you for the ruin? This ruin that you've experienced is as is, is vast, as is, is, is immense, as expansive as the, the ocean, as the sea. What can I say? Who can heal you? The whole task of trying to console, trying to comfort is just impossible. So there's these little snapshots of agony in 9 to 13. That's part of this intensity that we're seeing of the Lord's anger and judgment. But there's also here what we might call uh, in verse 14 the suppression of truth. And we're not surprised to see this here because we, we just talked about that in Romans 1, remember? When, when people rebel against God, when they're not giving Him thanks, they're not honoring Him as God, one of the things they do is they suppress, they put down, they minimize, they trivialize the truth. And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 14. The prophets um, have seen for them false and deceptive Visions. They have not exposed your iniquity. Uh, the, the, these prophets are, they, they've seen oracles, it says, too, that are false or that, that are misleading. And one of the ways that God brings judgment on a people and on nations is by removing his word from them. We saw that earlier with the prophets. There's no vision. There's no word from God here. We see that the prophets that they have are getting false visions, misleading, deceptive. They're going to oracles to get false and misleading information. Now, of course, there was Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is the one we believe wrote this book of Lamentations. Even though it doesn't say his name, the, the language is just like uh, the language in, in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has been with them all leading up to the siege of Babylon. And he had pled with them. You know, Jeremiah is called what? The, the weeping prophet. And, and there are tears all throughout Lamentations as well. And it gets really personal next week in Lamentations 3. But Jeremiah, of course, had, had told them the truth. He had given them the word from the Lord, but nobody listened to him. And all the other prophets, the bad ones, you know, they want to be positive. They want, they want people to feel good about themselves, about their prospects. But, but their oracles are, are empty and misleading. And the one thing they didn't do, verse 14 says, they haven't exposed your iniquity. Why is that important? To restore your fortunes. There's no restoration unless their iniquity is uncovered, exposed. These people needed rebuke. They needed to see their sin, and they weren't getting that from their prophets. Unfortunately, that's a description of many so-called churches today as well, isn't it? Go hear a nice, comforting, positive sermon with no exposing of sin, no calling for repentance, no challenge to grow, to change. Friends, the church should be a place where, as one author wrote, accurate x-rays of the heart should be available at the church you attend. A people who have never had their idols of their heart exposed or their sins uncovered or their pride laid bare before them Those people are in a dangerous situation as Judah is. Another aspect of the intensity, verses 15 to 17. Notice the scorn of the enemy. You notice it says here, all who pass along the way do what? Clap their hands. They're not applauding. They're hissing. They're wagging their heads. All of this is mockery. It's mockery. And the enemy is not silent. Notice verse 16. Notice what they say. We have swallowed her. Aha! This is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. We win. The scorn of the enemy is part of the intensity of the Lord's anger. The Lord's anger. How do we know? You can see at the end of verse 17, he says so. He, God, has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. It's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's anger Look at the first part of verse 17. We can, you can kind of take those first three lines in verse 17 as kind of a summary of this whole section, verses 9 to 17. Notice what it says. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. So three times He says it. He's done what, he's, what He intended. He's done what He said He would do. He's done what he ordained he would do. And what does this teach us? Well, one thing it teaches us is that the Lord is faithful to his own word, even in his anger. In this great and terrible destruction, one of the truths is that God has actually been faithful Because he has done what he said he would do. There is a faithfulness, brothers and sisters, even in his judgment. And now, if you've been holding your place in Leviticus 26, I want you to turn back there for just a moment because I think that this truth gives us and offers us even the the tiniest little glimpse, the tiniest little glimpse wrinkle of hope. And don't we need hope in chapter 2? If we go back to Leviticus 26, remember when he predicted all of this that was going to happen. Hidden away there at the bottom of that chapter is verse 44. Look at it. Yet for all that when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. And if he said that, then the God who has been faithful in judgment should be counted on to be faithful in restoration too, right? If he does the one, won't he also do the other? And if these people know their Bible, if they know their law, then even in God's faithfulness and judgment, there should be, if they could see through their spiritual blindness, there should be a glimpse of hope that God will not forsake them utterly, and he will restore them. Let's look finally at the the response to the Lord's anger, verses 18 to 22. Verses 18 and 19, you really have kind of a call to prayer. Notice the writer says here in the middle of verse 18, let tears stream down like a torrent. It's it's the picture of this, this seasonal stream Like in the springtime when the rainy season is overflowing the rivers and the creeks and they're gushing through like a torrent. We've all seen rivers and creeks like that. Let tears flow down like a torrent by day and by night. Jeremiah is saying, don't let yourself stop. Go on weeping, daughter of Zion. Don't let these tears cease. Keep it up. And then he says in verse 19, Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water. Just as you've been crying like this mighty rushing stream, now pour your heart out to the Father like that in the same way. Dump it all out to Him. Let Him hear everything in your heart it's a call to prayer and after you've been all that you've been through in this ravaging of what god has done to his people righteously angrily faithfully you've seen all of the evidence of it what does jeremiah say basically let us pray let us pray Prayer is the proper response of a desperate people. That's how we've defined lament since the beginning of this series. It is a prayer in pain. Look at the prayer itself, then, verse 20 to 22. Look, O Lord, and see. In fact, that's the only petition in the entire prayer. Look, O Lord, and see. And then notice the rest of the prayer, most of it is description, right? Uh, With whom have you dealt thus? Um, Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? They're talking about the siege conditions here. They run out of food. And apparently there's cannibalistic actions that take place as a result of this siege. We're going to see it again in chapter 4 should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord. Priests and prophets dead on the floor of the temple. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them. You, Lord. You have killed them in the day of your anger. Slaughtering without... Pity. You haven't held back. Just describing what's taken place. Why do that? Doesn't God already know? It's a little bit what we'll get to next Sunday, I, I, I assume, with Brother Andy. Do you have to inform the all-knowing one about what's taken place in your life? Especially when you're saying he did it as he did. Why do they have to do this? Why, why do you have this all over the Bible? Do you, do you have to run over it line by line? Do you have to itemize it all? Why, why are you bothering? Look, at, look in the Psalms. How many times do you come across a prayer in the Psalms and it's, and it's like, this is happening to me, and this is happening to me, and this is happening to me. And it's just an ongoing description of all of his troubles. Not, not even much of a request sometimes. Just this and, this and this and this and this and this. That's what we see here. The graphic detail of what's happening. Their heart is pouring out. Look, O Lord, and see. And then he goes into this extended description. Why do that? Well, in Bible prayers, they tend to itemize their misery because there's an assumption that they make. And I dare say that if you've ever been in a period of intense suffering, and you all have, when you've gone to the Lord, I dare say perhaps you've made this assumption too, that your misery is matters to God. Your misery matters to God, even if He's the one who's brought it on you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front. We're going to sing a song here in a minute to to wrap up the service, but let's just keep thinking about this as they're coming for just a moment. How many of you moms and dads have ever been in this position and have said something like this? this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Now, no child ever thought that while they were getting spanked. But isn't it interesting how a child can show affection to a parent even soon after a strong disciplining Why is that? It's because they know their parents' love and commitment to them, even in faithful and righteous punishment. And there are times, I know, even when spanking our kids, there are times when in the midst of the spanking, they might be saying, I hate you! And minutes later, I love you. How is that? The people of Judah describe their misery because they believe their misery will rouse God's mercies. They believe that the God who has stricken them will still be the God who welcomes them. What do you say in the day of God's anger? Well, according to this text, you might want to begin with, let us pray. Pray to our Father who loves us, who does rightly, who will not forget us, or abandon us. And you know, we have that same hope as Christians, don't we? Jesus has said he will never leave us or forsake us. It may feel sometimes that he has because of the darkness that we get ourselves into. But our theology holds us fast. He will hold us fast as we sing. It's because Jesus is more than a judge for our sins. In fact, He was judged for our sins. He bore the wrath. Jesus bore the righteous anger of God on our behalf. He took it. In this passage, Judah feels like death has swallowed her up. Four times we read that. But we know from our recent study in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is death that is actually swallowed up in the victory of Christ. And now, Jesus is our advocate. He stands at the right hand of the Father. When we sin, whispering into God's ear, as it were, remember, they're your children. I took their punishment for that sin. You already judged me for it. He is our older brother. He is our friend. And when we find ourselves in suffering, whether it be our fault or not, He is the right place to turn to. With our lament. With our pouring out of our hearts. With our dump our download, our description of all of our pain. He wants to hear it because he sympathizes with us. It's the right place for us to cast our hope. And we'll see that more in a couple of weeks, especially when we come back to Lamentations chapter 3. Let's stand, brothers and sisters. Let's sing a, song, a closing song that reminds us of that wonderful relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ when in trials and temptation and suffering we can call on him because he is our friend and there is no better friend. Let's sing together.